Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for today's Political Rewind. Glad to have you uh, in the uh, listening audience on a day when there is so much to talk about. I'm Bill Nygut. Um Let me get to the panel right away uh, because we have, as I said, so much that we want to have them discuss with us. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us, as he is on most Thursdays, and uh, we're very glad to have you with us. You've been on the road traveling quite a bit, among other things, You've been out kind of watching your Dayton Flyers. Yeah, absolutely. The number four team in the country. So if you're looking for a team to, to uh, that'll help you win your bracket in your office pool, I recommend the Dayton Flyers. Really? Really? So they're, they're really a, a strong team this season. Now. Number four team in the country. Wow. Congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. Um, and Tamar Hellerman, AJC senior reporter, is sitting right next to you. Tamara, you have come back today, and we're very grateful that we have you here to lead us off in our first conversation today about a story that we mentioned briefly when you were here on Tuesday. You've done a really comprehensive piece on maternal mortality in Georgia, not only talking about the data on it, but also really telling us about the lives that have been touched by it. And when we didn't get to it the other day, I got a number of notes from people saying we wanted to hear about that story. So we're really grateful you would come back today and will share with us some of what you learned. So thanks, thanks for, for coming. Me. Yeah, great to have you. Jackie Gingrich Cushman is here today as well. She's a conservative writer, an author, a columnist. Her uh, book is uh, Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. And uh, you also can read her columns and townhall.com or at jackiecushman.com. Right. What's your most recent column? I usually check and I didn't. That's okay. No, no. The, the, this week I'm talking about the presidential race and mm. the, the recent South Carolina debate mm. and the fact that, you know, I know, <laughs> we could spend an entire, <laughs> yeah. entire program that we won't do that today, but yeah. that's, that's what I focus on this time. Oh, okay. Again, you can look for it at townhall.com or jackiecushman.com. And you can get information about Jackie's book. Absolutely. By going to her website as well. Howard Franklin is back with us. He's the uh, principal. What is it? Is your position CEO, director of Ohio <laughs> River South? I'll answer anything, but managing director is what's on my business card. It's uh, and your work is in government relations. It is, and uh, which means to some extent lobbying. But we should also say you are the director of. Uh, Michael Bloomberg's, or now we know that he wants to be called Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> MikeBloomberg.com, senior advisor campaign, for the campaign. Senior George. advisor for the campaign. So we're going to talk a little bit about Bloomberg at some point of course. in the show today as well. All right, uh, Tamar, as I said, your Sunday piece, can we put up a link to Tamar's Sunday piece on um, maternal mortality? Terrific. We'll do that on our social media. Um, your piece was really powerful, and you talked primarily about what's happening with maternal mortality in rural communities. Exactly. And I guess to, to frame all of this, the U.S. is at the bottom of developed nations in terms of maternal deaths, and Georgia has long been at the bottom of U.S. states. And the numbers we've seen have, have shown that the crisis is only getting worse as the years have, have uh, gone on. And so this has been under debate in the legislature for years now. They appointed a, a study committee that included a bipartisan group of lawmakers, some doctors who looked into this, and they recently came out with 19 recommendations that they think will help the state improve uh, on those statistics. And I found focus the story on their main recommendation, which is to extend Medicaid for new mothers. Right now, because Georgia has not extended Medicaid to the entire population, new mothers are covered while they are pregnant and only up to 60 days after they have a, a child. And so their key recommendation is to extend that for a year. You point out that, um, and, and by the way, this all relates to legislation that we are seeing um, that Sharon Cooper has introduced in the state house, and we're going to watch how that progresses. But um, one of the interesting things that we uh, I saw it was in your piece um, was some really interesting data. So between 2012 and 2014, when the state had a panel that studied maternal mortality. They found that 60% of the pregnancy-related deaths were deemed preventable. 
that Georgia had a pregnancy-related mortality ratio of 25.9 deaths per 100,000 live births during that three-year period compared to 17 deaths per 100,000 live births. Nationally, black women three to four times more likely to die when they become mothers in Georgia than white women. And it goes on and on. But maybe the most important thing you can tell us is we're talking now about primarily not women who die in childbirth, but within the first year after childbirth. Exactly. And I came at this issue completely cold. I, I had never really written about this before, so I was very shocked when I started doing research. And I, I assumed that meant that, that you died in the hospital right after you gave birth. But no, a lot of these deaths are happening in the first 42 days, in the first couple months, in the first year. And they could be from things like preeclampsia, from things um, like... Um, you know, hypertension, high blood pressure related things. Um, and, and I guess the argument that, that you're hearing from folks who say you need to extend Medicaid is that there are certain conditions that aren't popping up until 60, until way after the Medicaid window closes. And there are certain things that if not properly monitored by a doctor, if you don't have health care, you know, you could be at high risk to to pass away six months or eight months or 10 months out. We need to point out the, the legislature has not been insensitive to this issue. I think I, your article points out that a couple of years, sessions ago, they uh, earmarked some $2 million for maternal, uh, for, for aspects of maternal mortality care in, in uh, rural parts of the state. And it's worth noting that overall, we're talking about 100 deaths over the course of three years. You know, when we're talking about people who die from the flu or who die in traffic accidents, it's a small number. But at the same time, it's incredibly mm-hmm. disturbing because you think about this is America in 2020. This is not 1850. You shouldn't die as a woman when you when you give birth. And, and especially when you compare it to the statistics nationally, when you compare it to places like Greece, which actually is better than the U.S. in terms of maternal deaths prevented, uh, the numbers are just really shocking. So are a part of the Part of the challenge, right, is that is that half of Georgia's counties don't have an OBGYN, and that plays into this. And I, I think part of the concern is that even if you have the money, you might not have the doctors, right? So much of these... So much of the factors that that kind of lead to this statistic, so many of them are kind of interconnected. This very much has to do with Georgia's uh, rural hospital crisis. And, you know, if if you're lucky enough to have a family member who catches after you have a baby, wow, you're not looking so great. You have to go to the hospital. It's really tough when you have to drive sometimes 30, 45 minutes to seek emergency medical help. And, yeah, to get to your check-ins, you might have to cross multiple county lines. So that's part of it as well. Another huge factor is your health prior to getting pregnant. So if if you live in a place where, with a lot of fast food or not much of a culture of working out, that's not great either. Jackie, weigh in on this. I mean, I know you've said this is an issue that matters to you a great deal. Sharon Cooper has done yeoman's mm-hmm. work uh, trying to bring this to the attention of the General Assembly, the uh, Republican legislator from Cobb County. And she's made some progress in the legislature on this, but with the budget problems they're facing right now, not as much as I think she'd like to. Right. And she you know, she has done a very good job. And I think this is really a bipartisan um, concern. I mean, all, both Republicans and Democrats are concerned about this. And while the numbers might be small, as, as you mentioned, it's not as much as, as other you know forms. The, the challenge is they're preventable, first of all. And then secondarily, you leave a child behind who no longer has their mother. Um, and so I think we really need to think long and hard. It is a very complex situation because, you know, if you don't have good health to begin with, and then if during your pregnancy, I've had two children, so I've actually been, you know, I've been pregnant, I've gone through that. And if you don't have good health care during that, right, then you're then you're more likely to have problems. And then after you have children, depending on whether or not you have support around you and whether or not your children sleep. Um, I had one child that slept wonderfully, and I had one child that never slept. Um, so, but if you're, you know, I mean, the reality is if you are sleep deprived and you're not in good health to begin with, and I mean, you know, everything kind of, it just kind of, you know, goes along. And so, yeah, I think you really need a support system, both family and community, to think about how do we make sure the outcome is what we want, which is a, a family with a healthy baby and a healthy mother. Um, and it doesn't really work for the family at all if, if neither one of those happen. Howard, this I was surprised to learn this is an issue that your um, your your company has taken on as well. <clears throat> it is. Um, f- full disclosure, we do some work for the Georgia Alliance of Community Hospitals. Okay. But on a separate note, uh, and, and just wanted to echo what Tamara mentioned in terms of the hospital the hospital crisis. But on a separate note, the Georgia Association of Black Women Attorneys and the Georgia Association of Women Lawyers put together a reception and a, and a panel discussion with a number of state lawmakers 
lawmakers and others who are really stakeholders in this space. And so as much as I want to tip my hat to the lawmakers who are having this conversation, a number of folks at the, on the ground are really bringing this issue to the attention of local lawmakers, of local health departments and, and, and county health departments as well to see what other resources can be brought to bear on this issue. So um, my understanding, Tamar, is that initially Sharon Cooper had uh, asked that the legislature consider putting um, expanding Medicaid to allow for a full year of care for mothers who have given birth um, and that she's had to um, accept that maybe they'll get six months instead, again, because of the budget crunch out there. Have I got that right? Yeah, exactly. So so we're talking about the next upcoming budget year. The legislature yes. so far has been consumed with this current budget year and kind of getting that out of the way. So the debate is only really starting to happen. But, you know, all of this has to do with a state budget that has to balance, right? So competing priorities and all these different choices they have to make. The governor has his $2,000 teacher pay raise he really wants. The speaker has his income tax uh, cuts that he wants to do. And then you fit in, you know, extending Medicaid to new mothers, and, and that's pricey as well. And, and we've seen all sorts of different numbers, some of them up to $70 million for extending it for a whole year. So it's not exactly cheap. And it's all about kind of balancing that. And then there's the politics as well. You know, the, the governor said this issue is a priority for him. At the same time, he, he has been hesitant to extend Medicaid for everyone. And there's kind of the politics in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't want to be seen as, as supporting something that, that President Obama, you know, a big priority of his. So, so there's politics involved as well. Kevin, you know, again, uh, Jackie mentioned it, Tamar mentioned it. We're talking about 100 deaths in a three-year period. And we do acknowledge that there are other diseases, there are other uh, uh, causes of death that are much greater th- than that number. The, the thing that is beyond troubling about this is I, Jackie made a great point. That's 100 children who've mm-hmm. lost a mother. Or, or potentially more, actually. But right, right, of course. Yeah, right. But here's the other thing. It's, it's troubling that this breaks down on racial lines. That's the last thing in the world we want to be have the state stand for is that black mothers are dying at a greater rate than white mothers because of this. I, I can't think of any more fundamental uh, uh, problem in terms of the divisive, you know, the, the, the difference between blacks and whites and their sta- state of living in a community than that. Right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, in what kind of uh, world do we think it's okay? For, uh, to not take care of mothers. I mean, um, it, it just doesn't add up. It's the result of, you know, kind of policy differences and political differences that are outside forces on this. But I think, as Jackie mentioned, I mean, who doesn't agree that we shouldn't fix this problem? I think everyone agrees it. And um, you got to hope that it gets fixed. And I do give uh, Sharon Cooper a lot of credit for continuing mm-hmm. to push it. I think the hard problem is it, to, to fix it long term, there's really no – I mean, we can obviously do some things in the short term to help the mothers that are pregnant in the next year or two. But really, if we look at long-term health of different communities, we need to think about underlying wellness. And it's not just right after you, – you can't look at after you have the child, you know, how are you doing? You really look at – how are you doing for your life and what other diseases might come in play? And really think about how do we make sure that every community in Georgia um, is as healthy as they can be. Yeah. Um, we're going to watch how this bill unfolds tomorrow. I, I, there does seem to be some energy for doing at least something in the next fiscal year. With, you know, as you say, they've, they're just finishing up work on the, the current year's budget, the uh, fixes to the supplemental budget. Now they start on the big budget, which takes effect in July. So we'll see how that all unfolds. Sure. But Jackie's exactly correct. So much of this has to do with preventative care before you're pregnant and long-term care after you've had your baby. This has to do with making sure rural hospitals don't close. This is this is not a one-year fix. And unfortunately, you know, we're talking about politicians who need to get reelected. And so, so often, you know, I saw this all my years in Washington, when something's not a dire crisis at the on the front page of the paper every day, sometimes it's hard to keep focusing on that, especially when there's so many many tough choices that need to be made. Okay, let's uh, thank you for that. Um, I know you can, you can stick with this for a little while longer, can't you? Thank you. Let, then let's move to another uh, issue that does seem to be increasingly uh, looking as if it's a maybe dire crisis, uh, Kevin, and that, of course, is uh, the coronavirus and, and the, the concerns that the United mm-hmm. States could, in the, in the near future, be struggling with trying to contain it here. So far, we've been relatively lucky in the United States. But uh, one of the issues has been 
are our governments prepared to deal with it, starting with the state of Georgia. Yesterday, Governor Kemp held a news conference with uh, his public health people, and uh, here's, among other things, what he said about what's happening in Georgia. We have been on conference calls and in meetings for the last three weeks or so in preparation um, for the what if. We're thinking very far ahead. Hopefully that day will never come, but again, we have a great team uh, I've been on two conference calls myself uh, with the president's team, with uh, Secretary Azar, Dr. Redfield, um, Ken Cuccinelli at Homeland Security, many of the nation's governors and, and uh, public health officials, which uh, Dr. Toomey here uh, is very experienced and she's been in communication with all the county level partners because that's where the response come from. Uh, the administration in Washington understands the response happens at the local level. Uh, they have been working on that for weeks and weeks now, and um, we'll, we'll be ready for whatever comes, and hopefully it won't be much. But if it is, we'll be ready to respond. Uh, Kevin, it occurs to me, and, I'm, and everybody at the table can weigh in on this, uh, there are a couple things that a governor and a mayor, too, is in a similar situation. You've got to be sure you are prepared to deal with. In a city like Atlanta, in a state like Georgia, Snow is one of them. Absolutely. That lesson has been learned and relearned and learned over again, yeah. But the threat of a pandemic, of a virus that could spread rapidly across a state, the governor better make it clear, whoever that governor is, that she or he is prepared, has done everything possible to prepare the citizens for what could happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is one of those rare situations where no matter how you feel about the role of government, if you're, you know, a big government person or a libertarian or just don't like government in your business at all ever, this is one of those occasions when it comes to something like this, a disease or a, a health crisis, where government is absolutely necessary in the best position to do something and needs to be trusted and active, even if you are a government skeptic. And I think that, you know, Kemp's trying to obviously send that <laughs> message. The president, um, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what message he's trying to send on it, but I do think that it's, uh, this is a time when, I mean, if the government can't handle this, there really isn't anyone else to handle it. Um, Howard, weigh in. Yeah, I watched the uh, press conference by the president last night, uh, and I guess also Vice President Pence. And I agree with Kevin. I'm not sure what message he's trying to send either. I think part of the challenge here, though, is if you have been a science denier, uh, either in the office of the White House or prior to, it's difficult to muster in the seriousness of the response that's necessary. And frankly, as much as I appreciate the attempt to assure us from the governor, who is obviously taking this seriously, I, a lot of Americans have to be concerned after the performance we saw I, last I, night. Okay. I don't want to conflate the way Governor Kemp is trying okay. to deal with this here in Georgia and where the president may may have been in terms of how he addressed it last night. So if you can, let's talk a little separately about it. Certainly this. worth separating. And again, I, th I think the governor sounded somber and looked serious and is obviously ready to spring into action. Uh, and, and as I think we've seen with this governor and previous governors, will bring to bear uh, the full weight of the state of Georgia and the 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 professionals who know how to answer these questions, how to take the right of the appropriate measures. But I, to, to your point, I think there's got to be some degree of coordination. He mentioned all the calls he had yeah. been on, and that's a question that's got to be an open question for most so of us. So let's, Jackie, I want to get you to weigh in, but I want you to listen to the president first, please. Uh, he went to the, uh, to the briefing room for only the third time in his entire tenure as president so far to make remarks. He brought along his uh, public health team. CDC was there. Alex Azar was there from HHS. But uh, here's one of the comments that the president made that may be what Howard's talking about when he says he's a little unsettled. And I want you to react to that when we get to the other side, Jackie. We have in quarantine those infected and those at risk. We have a lot of great quarantine facilities. We're rapidly developing a vaccine, and they can speak to you. The professionals can speak to you about that. Uh, the vaccine is coming along well, and in speaking to the doctors, we think this is something that we can develop fairly rapidly, a vaccine for the future. But we're very, very ready for this, for anything, whether it's going to be a uh, breakout of larger proportions or whether or not we're uh, 
you know, we're at that very low level, and uh, we want to keep it that way. So we're at the low level. As they get better, we take them off the list so that we're going to be pretty soon at only five people, and we could be at just one or two people over the next short period of time. So we've had very good luck. So, uh, Jackie, our Mariana, our new intern, uh, did a little research for us. Uh, there have been 14 cases of COVID-19, which is, of course, the name mm-hmm. now that we're being asked to use for coronavirus. According to CDC, of those cases, 12 have been the result of travel. Two have been contracted in the U.S., and that's of some concern because they're not quite sure how that happened. Right. Um, worldwide, 2,700 people have died. No one in the U.S. has died. And according to the CDC, uh, for the general American public who are unlikely to be exposed to the virus at this time, the immediate health risk from COVID-19 is considered low. Right. So I think it's fascinating because I watched the um, the news conference as well last night. And because we obviously have different perspectives, I came away with a different view, right, from Howard. And that, that's not unusual. But I do think if someone's skeptical about President Trump in terms of as a leader and already has that skepticism, I think they're going to view everything that way. Um, I think he actually handled it very well. He said, we don't know. We're, we're prepared, but we don't know what's going to happen. We don't. We don't know how it's going to spread. And then he turned it over, which I thought was really smart of him, rapidly to the people that actually knew something. So he didn't stand up there and try to talk about everything and ignore the people with the expertise. What he did and is he handed it over to the people that actually have the science that could talk about it. And in fact, if you watch the um, if you watch it physically, you could see him when they turned back to him. He was like, no, no, you go up next. So he, I think he was really trying to make, to say, we have the team together. We have the scientists working on it. We have CDC. I personally am glad we have CDC here in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think he did a good job. And I think his point was, you know, there's no reason to panic. Let's not all run to CVS and buy everything. Let's be smart. And again, they talked about the basic and we're in flu season. The basic things of let's wa- make sure you wash your hands, make sure you do it properly and get everything. Uh, and the flu at this point is much more of a danger, at least for those of us you know, in the United States today. Um, than, than COVID-19 will be. That may not be true in two or three weeks, right. but right now it's, it's a big flu season and we have to be careful. So, Tamar, there is, there is this tricky balancing act that any leader has to uh, be able to accomplish on something like this. On one hand, you do want to uh, try to tamp down panic. Um, and, and, and on the other hand, you also have to be as straightforward as possible in saying, here are the realistic possibilities of what could happen. The president seems to want to uh, err on the side of, don't worry, it's not going to be a problem. We're taking care of it. And the issue there becomes the past tends to haunt these situations. We know, and even his most fervent supporters know, that the president over the years has tended to exaggerate, to misstate information. We know uh, the famous case of his pushing a hurricane into Alabama, which wasn't going to Alabama, and then punishing scientists at NOAA who who contradicted him and said, no, it's not going there. So this is one of those moments where as much as people sometimes try to dismiss, oh, he conflates things, oh, he exaggerates, this is a moment when that can be a, a problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. And, and hopefully the CDC is not going to have to filter whatever they're putting out and, and they can put out the Well, the CDC has been pretty to. straightforward. Sure. Well, you, you do watch an Alex Azar, though, his appointee to HHS and others, and sort of wonder as they're standing at the podium last night, whether they're kind of looking over their shoulder, wondering how the president's responding to what how they're framing all this. Yeah, and let me just jump in for a second and say, I think the, the words last night were fine. Mm-hmm. Um I think some of the actions that lead up to this place are concerning. Obviously, the budget cuts to the National Institute of Health and to CDC that don't have us prepared, right? So Trump last night was talking in the future tense. Hey, we with enough time, we can respond. We'll have time. And the beauty of, of the technology and the, the, the scientists we have on the ground is if we had not defunded them, maybe wouldn't have the lead up time. So I, I, I appreciate what Jackie says about, hey, maybe two or three weeks. Uh, you know, this will be a much more serious issue. And, and I hope that we don't get there. But I think if you're thinking about this from, the, from a public policy standpoint, if, you, if you're going to tap the leader of 
who is going to be the point person on this issue as a governor who's got or a former governor, now your vice president, who has no experience in this and has a, a history himself of sometimes not empowering his own healthcare uh, professionals from Indiana. I, I do think people who are paying attention to the substance of what's happened up until this point, up until that press conference, to still be worried. Oh, I, I think, Jackie, we need to say that by putting the vice president in that position, he's not going to be the on-the-ground on guy dealing with this. It's symbolic. It says it does send a message that the White House takes this seriously. Absolutely. And also it sends a message that, that this is a group that can reach into any organization it needs to and get a, get a real response. I mean, when you have the vice president as opposed to a cabinet level, you have access and you have immediate response that you wouldn't have otherwise, or a separate person if they appointed a random, you know, somebody else. Um, in term, and in terms of, you know, the speed of which we can do things, I mean, clearly we're going to have enough, but enough money allocated for this. And they're not arguing is that it's not two and a half, it's four, it's eight, whatever, right? But it'll be something, it'll be something more if we need it. Um, but the, the challenge with um, the virus, I mean, the, sorry, the vaccine and trying to get that into the right timing is that until you know what it is, which was relatively recent, you can't actually start the actual right work and then trials. And the trials themselves, I think, take around 12 to 18 months when you go through all three cycles. Now, they may they may expedite that to some degree, but part of that is just literally the timing of having the, the right trials to make sure that it's not harmful as opposed to it's helpful. An, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a process. Bill, something I'd like to add, too. The president's been pretty critical of the media in this case. I mean, he's, he's always critical of the media, but in this case, you know, he believes the media is exaggerating and creating problems for the markets and all that stuff. And, and, and listen, I don't think he's necessarily wrong when you look at it this way. I mean, the media's job is to bring this stuff to light, to report on what could happen, what is happening. But but think about it realistically. I mean, five people in Italy get sick, and it's a major headline. Now, you know, normally we wouldn't care about that, but as all the uncertainty about this virus is really what's what's going mm -hmm. on. And I don't think his criticism of the media moving the markets is 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 uh, valid. The markets moved and the media reported on it, you know, in reaction to the virus. But, it, it, you know, as a person who works in the media, as we all do, people need to, they want to know what's going on. This is the kind of thing that people just can't get enough information on. And you mentioned I'd been traveling for the past 10 days. I mean, there were a lot of masks on the airplane. I saw more people with their little containers of, you know, the uh, disinfectant uh, alcohol little thing. And I sneezed once on the plane and I could feel the dirty, <laughs> the dirty look, you know. Um, I wasn't yeah. sick. I just kind of had a tickle in my nose. But so, I mean, I do think it's, on people's mind, even though, as Jackie points out, they recognize the flu is a much bigger risk. Getting in your car on the way back from the airport is a much bigger risk. But there's just something about the mystery and uncertainty of a deadly virus that the public demands well, to know what's going yeah, on. But as Jackie also points out, as of today, it flu is a bigger risk. We don't know what right. might be happening in weeks ahead. Tomorrow, it, it strikes me that one of the reasons perhaps the president did in fact take the unusual step for him to come to the briefing room uh, to lead a group in talking about this, is he gets it. This is a crucial moment eight months before, nine months before, whatever it is, the next election. And his leadership on this, the way he talks about this, um, this could be a, a, a very meaningful moment in terms of how the country perceives him as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the sort of issue that if you're a Republican, you care about it. If you're a Democrat, you care about it. And it, it is a moment where you you do, you know, you can look like this big leader. And of course, any president would want that. And sure, if it's right before an election, why not? Um, when it comes to Congress approving this extra money or and, that, and this is going to be a fight that we're going to have over the next he couple says, of weeks. He says if Schumer sends him a bill for or, or the House sends him and with Schumer's approval an $8.5 billion budget for it, he's fine with that. And in general, I'm very pessimistic when it comes to yeah. Congress acting quickly on stuff like this. Yeah. But unlike some of these other emergency fights over border money, over even Hurricane Michael money, this is different. Everyone mm -hmm. understands public health fears, as Kevin said. There's so much fascination over this stuff and fear. Gonna move. This is why we yes. bought 
we brought Tamar back to yeah. Georgia because I was just worried she was getting too cynical with all that time. <laughs> and she's, she's by nature an optimistic, positive sure. person. Howard, do you agree with me that this is a crucial moment in his presidency? It is, and absolutely he's going to have a lot to, you know, a lot of us will be looking at the ballot box and thinking back to these last several months. And I'll also say just, you know, I thought it was interesting. Uh, maybe it was a, a previous press conference where he, he mentioned, to Kevin's point, he being the president, mentioned uh, Democrats and all, you know, all the debates and some of the, the ideas that have been bandied about or argued about being the reason that the markets have moved and, and, and you know, in, in a lot of these different ways. And I, I think it, it is helpful to acknowledge the gravity of the situation. I do I do give the, the president credit for stepping into mm-hmm. that, that space. And I think, you know, that, it's great to hear the words. Now we've got to see the actions. we got to get a, to a break. You want one last uh, word before one, we one do that? One last thing, because we have a lot of listeners, or you have a lot of listeners. But the most important thing that people can do themselves is the same thing that would help with the flu, which is to wash your hands thoroughly yep. and to make sure that you continually do that. Thank you, Nurse Jackie. You're welcome. Well, no, she's like a mom. I, mean, I love that. I am a mom. I love that. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Howard Franklin, Jackie Cushman, and Kevin Riley are with us. Tamar Hallerman had to move on because you, Kevin Riley, her boss, pushed her out the door saying, why don't you go do a story instead yeah, of sitting here? Keep reporters busy, All right. especially the really good ones <laughs> like Tamar. Uh, I want to move on um, to talk about a, a big story in electoral politics here in Georgia. But before I do, very quickly, Kevin, we should point out Tom Faust is keeping an eye on the market this morning. We know that the market dropped 2,000 points this week because largely uh, the concerns about coronavirus shutting, uh, virus shutting down trade. And by the way, the state of Georgia is now looking for a 40% fall off in shipping into the state because of uh, uh, restrictions being placed on shipping around the world. Uh, but the market is now down uh, uh, another 500 points. It's continuing to be in trouble. So we'll we'll see how this all levels out by the time we get to next week. I'm concerned about what your wealth looks like on paper now after yeah. a, a week yeah. of bad markets. Yeah. I mean, it must be yeah. just a terrible hey, thing. I'm just a, I just talk for a living. You run a newspaper. I'll look <laughs> at your figure. <laughs> uh, Howard Franklin, news uh, came out this week that Michael Thurman. One of the most popular, I think it's safe to say, you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong. One of the most popular Democrats in the state of Georgia, now CEO of DeKalb County, um, ran for Senate in 2010. Uh, He's been labor commissioner. He served in the state house, superintendent of schools in DeKalb County. There were a lot of people who thought he should make this Senate race seat number two, the, the seat that Kelly Loeffler now holds. He was considering it, giving it a lot of thought. He's decided against it. He instead wants to continue as CEO of DeKalb County. What do you make of all that? Um, So many things, but I I think he's doing important work in DeKalb County, so I'm not surprised that he decided to stay. Uh, But I do know over the course of the last six or even more months, a, a number of Democrats, both in the state, outside the state, who have been impressed by his leadership, who want a steady hand in that race, have come to him and talked to him. I know because I've been one of them um, (laughs) about him jumping into that race. And so I I think we have started to see that race fill out more with a number of other Democrats jump into it and and one or two additional Republicans as well. Um, But I I do think it's a testament that, you know, a lot of folks have been on pins and needles waiting for him to make this decision uh, to the leadership that he's shown and his ability not only to rally Democratic voters, but also his leadership in a really important county in our state. So I'm sure he will be if he's not on the ballot rallying uh, the troops for whatever Democrat comes out 
of the jungle primary, assuming that we have to find ourselves in a runoff in 2021. I think right now that's probably the, the, the most likely scenario with four or five candidates. You know, in Jackie, it. it's interesting. Um, let's point out we've got Matt Lieberman in that race already, the son of Joe uh, Lieberman, the well-known uh, former senator from Connecticut. We've got uh, Ed Tarver, Augusta state mm-hmm. senator, former U.S. attorney from the Southern District of Georgia, also very highly thought of. Um, in the race. And then there's Raphael Warnock. And a lot of people are rallying around Raphael Warnock, including the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. He seems to be the candidate that if Democrats could have their way, they'd they'd really consolidate around as the unity uh, candidate. That said, one of the reasons that people were pushing Mike Thurmond is they see him as a more moderate alternative. And Democrats are worried that Raphael Warnock is very far to the left and his sermons are going to be on, you know, he's had Ebenezer Baptist. People are going to see what he said in some of his sermons. And he's going to face a problem of being too liberal for Georgia, according to the critics. Well, um, um, Reverend Warnock, and I think very highly of him um, personally. He served, well, he's on leave now, but we're on a board for Georgia Early Education Alliance for Students Together. Um, and he's very dynamic. He's a very good speaker. He's very passionate about what he believes in. I think the challenge not only is, you know, how will he align in terms of once you get look at all the candidates, but also he's untested in terms of a candidate itself. He hasn't been through a campaign. He's been a, he's been a you know, a reverend serving at Ebenezer Baptist Church, but he's never been a candidate. So I think part of that, too, is just the vetting of that candidate to see what will happen. I personally think Tarver is a, um, I think he's kind of the He's kind of quiet right now. Um, he doesn't have that kind of fiery because he's not. I mean, he's not a pastor. He's. I think he was in a. What was he? He's an attorney, state yeah. senator, and, a, and U.S. attorney. That's right. Right, U.S. attorney. Thank you. And he's very well thought of. So I think he could actually be the sleeper in terms of if you're looking for a moderate. Uh, Michael Thurman clearly would have been a very formidable candidate, very well thought of. Um, I don't blame him for not getting in because if you look at kind of, um, you know, Howard, you mentioned this, if you look at kind of the jungle general, what more than likely is going to happen is that you'll have, you know, one Democrat and one Republican that ends up in a runoff in 2021, depending on who gets the most votes out of both sides. That was my question. Maybe this was for you, Howard. I, I mean, didn't Mike Thurman do the Democrats a favor? Because let's let Leffler and Collins fight it out, and then right now let let a, a single Democratic candidate dominate. So at least we get a they get a runoff in the situation. Yeah, and I think the question I think earlier on was would he have been that candidate before mm-hmm. Raphael got in, before Tarver got in? I, you know, it's just funny to hear Jackie. Virtually everything you said about uh, Raphael Warnock could and should, probably should be said for Kelly Leffler, right? Untested, oh, never been absolutely. Vetted. I, and I would say that as well. I mean, I've said that before. I mean, I think she was. She she is untested, and I think her can't. Her, I think she's trying to get her feet under her, and we'll see whether or not that happens. Uh, yeah, and how quickly Collins clearly happen. has his feet under him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've said it on the show before. I mean, I'll be interested in your reaction. I mean. Uh, would you want to run against Doug Collins? I mean, the guy has been <laughs> lately, well, especially. He's been on fire. He's at seat. I mean, this, Jackie, this there weekend. was a chance you would have been I running know, and, against and him. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think if I'd have been appointed, I'm not sure he'd have run against me because I think I'm a different. Per, I mean, I'm a different candidate than Kelly would have been. I have a lot more campaign experience. It would not have been the same. And I think for her, I think because she is an out, you know, is an outsider and, and not been in politics, this is a hard transition for her. I mean, she's used to being a PR person for a corporate. Right. For corporations, it's very different than being a political candidate. Which, by the way, is the difference between an untested Raphael Warnock as a Democrat jumping into the race and a Kelly Leffler jumping in. Because the one thing Raphael Warnock knows how to do is stand in front of TV cameras and crowds and be an an, an exciting speaker. That's not the be all and end all of winning a race. But it doesn't hurt. I totally agree. He definitely, if you watch his videos, he's very warm. He's very genuine. He's very, I mean, he's very authentic. I don't agree with his positions, but I like him personally. Um, You say that a lot about people. I do. I mean, I like like him. He's a a nice guy. I think I'm going to vote for him. Um, But again, I do think that part of the challenge um, that he has is that he hasn't gone through the vetting in terms of. Absolutely. And I'm sure the AJC, maybe that's where tomorrow is. I don't know. But he hasn't gone through that process. Where clearly Doug Collins has. That is going to be intense. Um, Howard? Uh, you thought perhaps Mike Thurman might be uh, uh, moving forward with a run because he bought a table at the Legislative Black Caucus Listen, event, I, right? I'm, I'm telling everybody and anyone, 45th <laughs> annual congressional, or not congressional, but Georgia Legislative Black Caucus Heritage Dinners tonight. Uh, we've been... And now remember, this is now Thursday, so if you're watching the show on Friday you, night, <laughs> you missed it. Was it. Last night. That's right, that's right. <laughs> but you'll still take money if that, people could be there. And, yeah, okay. Happily. Yeah. Um, 
All right. So I, I, let's um, move on. To, let's talk about another political story since we've got you here, uh, Howard. Uh, South Carolina, um, we're all going to be watching closely on Saturday afternoon and evening as uh, voters there go to, to the polls. Uh, and there's increasingly this fear that Bernie Sanders could possibly come as could beat Joe Biden, maybe, or come so close that it really is harmful to Biden's uh, candidacy, which puts your man, Michael Bloomberg, or I, again, Mike, Mike Bloomberg, as he now <laughs> wants to be known, or apparently always has, and we just didn't know it, uh, puts him in a position to starting in Super Tuesday next week to try to show that he can be a powerful vote getter for <clears throat> Democrats. Yeah, How do you see it? If you, if you look at this from the perspective of the Bloomberg campaign, he and his team have made the, of which I'm a part, have made the argument that Democrats in particular, but the whole political world has put too much emphasis on these first four contests. And I think that point was made with a lot of emphasis on the debacle the night of the caucuses in Iowa. Uh, but even some of the following primaries that just haven't necessarily won, only 4% of the apportioned delegates that Democrats need to clinch a nomination were available those first four contests. But if you look at the amount of money that's been spent by leading Democrats up and down the ticket in those four, four, first four states, it, you know, you would think it absolutely would, would somehow correlate with winning the nomination. The bet that Mike Bloomberg has made uh, really begins on Super Tuesday, where we've got 14 states, a number, you know, huge number of delegates available and a lot of states that Democrats haven't spent much time or money in. And I can speak to that specifically because we've got nearly 80 people on the ground here in Georgia. Uh, and there's no other campaign knocking on doors, talking to voters, hosting events and bringing our candidate and surrogates. Yes, in. and that's, that's going to be a very positive thing. But on the other side, this is exactly what Jackie leads people to talk about buying an election. I mean, there's a plus and a minus to the kind of infrastructure that Howard is talking about. Oh, absolutely. Um, and first of all, I want to make clear, people know that Bloomberg is not on the ballot in South Carolina, right. but he is in the rest of the ballot. Right. Correct. Um, so if you're looking for outcomes in South Carolina, you won't, you won't see yes, him there. Yeah. I think secondarily, um, I mean, money does help. I mean, you, you have to have money to have, you know, some media presence, some signs, some infrastructure. But let's be perfectly clear, money does not but, I mean, you can't – enough money can't actually solve the problems. I mean, and, and we talked earlier, there was a, um, a, a governor's race in Louisiana recently where the Republican governor outspent – again, personal money outspent the Democratic candidate and lost. And that's because he made a couple – he was a bad candidate and made a couple of bad strategic mistakes from a messaging standpoint. And money can't fix that. If you have a bad message and a bad strategy, you can't spend more and make it better. I, I don't remember – how well funded your father's presidential? Uh, I really no, don't. It, oh, it, well, yeah, it was, and I thought you were being facetious. No, no, no. <laughs> I seriously don't remember how much of an issue it was after the earliest stage. Yeah, so and it was, and that was part of why, because he did, you know, he did. Um, obviously, he won South Carolina. Yeah. He won Georgia. Um, and to your point, you know, in the spring, we eventually, you know, the, the money ran dry and, and money would have been a, a big help for him because, I mean, a lot of things I mean, he might not be great at, but he's great at messaging and he's great at getting in crowds. Um, and that would have made a difference. But I think the opposite isn't true. If you have a lot of money and you have a bad candidate and a bad message, it doesn't really help. We, so, we agree, Jackie. I, yeah, and I'm not saying that he does. No, I'm just saying people saying, saying, that. Are saying but, it's just But to that election. point about... Bernie Sanders and the juggernaut he is becoming, I think, depending on how Saturday goes, and a lot of folks are watching with bated breath. Uh, and, and, and let me just say, too, I also think in addition to money, I think the experience of having run for the highest office in the land is very, very helpful. Joe's done it three times now, Vice President Biden. Uh, Bernie's done it twice now. And, and, you know, we're seeing that he actually had some successes in 2016 and is racking up some early successes now. So well, I think Biden put the pressure on himself. I mean, from the beginning, he, he pretty mm -hmm. much said, I will and have to win South Carolina. So now if he doesn't, all of a sudden, I, I think he has he sort of put himself in a not a good spot there because he, you know, I mean, it's still possible for him to become the nominee if he doesn't win in South Carolina, but he's just sort of said that himself, right. you know, and if yeah. you're thinking about giving money. He said it from the debate stage, as a matter yeah. of fact, to yeah. ask this Jackie, question. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie, it, this isn't about whether I think Joe Biden ought to be president or not, just as how I, like all of us in this room, as observers of mm -hmm. campaigns, I think one of the saddest things I heard in the last couple of days was the Biden campaign announced that beyond South Carolina, they've made a six-figure media buy going into Super Tuesday. Fourteen, 14 states. states. A six-figure buy will get you 
Nothing, yeah. Nothing. Nothing. that, I mean, oh my gosh. When uh-huh. I heard that, I thought, I don't, he may win South Carolina, and maybe the people who are trying to stop Bernie are suddenly going to flood his campaign right. coffers. But if they don't, you can't win Super Tuesday on a six-figure media Well, and I, and I certainly, to your point, I wouldn't have announced that if I had yeah. that. <laughs> maybe if get that close to the vest. But the one thing that I don't understand, and maybe Howard can help me with this, is I don't understand how a, a – I mean, on his website, Senator Bernie Sanders says he's an independent. He's an independent. He says that on his website. How, how is it possible that an independent can be winning the Democratic primary process. That just, that just blows my mind. Listen, the, Donald Trump has scrambled the political universe for all of us. I, a lot of us feel the same way, and I know a, a number of folks who are in the establishment of the Democratic Party are very concerned about the down-ticket, down-ballot effects of having mm-hmm. to defend Bernie's statements and his policies for the next several months. I'm even more concerned, not only just in 2020, but the reputational damage it does to the Democratic Party for decades to come. All right, I got to get to another break, um, and we'll do that right now. Uh, I'm Wait, no, Tom Faust tells me, by the way, that there's a new floor, uh, poll out of St. Petersburg, out of the newspaper there, Tom, uh, that puts Biden back out in front in uh, uh, Florida, which is uh, interesting. Um, that would be the Tampa Bay Times, just is, to be clear. Is that what it is, Tampa Bay Times? <laughs> All right. Tom's telling me. And Tom, I'll, why don't we take a break and we can talk about it on the other side. This is Political Rewind. <laughs> Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this week was a big week for you at the state legislature because uh, your paper has run a a, a continuing to uh, do investigative work around uh, poor shoddy conditions at uh, many assisted living facilities on the lack of oversight of those facilities. And it's been a major effort by the paper. And uh, there's now legislation that is taking its first steps forward that would tighten the oversight, increase fines, and and perhaps begin to remedy some of the things that Carrie Teagarten and others on your team found. Right. I mean, we've talked about it on this show, and yep. we actually did a town hall meeting here at yeah. Georgia Public Broadcasting. So we're happy to see uh, uh, Sharon Cooper in the in the mm-hmm. legislature has gotten a bill out of committee, and it looks like it's moving on, and it's got some strong provisions in an effort to just take start taking steps to make sure elderly people in these facilities are cared for in the way that they should be and and they, that their families expect them to be. So we're very optimistic about that. We've taken a strong stand on our, our opinion pages, and we're really happy to see that moving forward. And we'll be keeping our eye on it because we really think this is an important thing for Georgia and moving the state forward. Well, you know, you and I, I think, are probably starting to look at wondering whether we're going to be in good assisted living facilities down the road, Kevin. I think, we, you know, <laughs> as, much as, we, as much as we joke, uh, one of the things we've learned in terms of reaction to that reporting is that it's a, this is something that affects everybody, it seems like. I mean, because either— Well, you have parents. Mm-hmm. Parents have, and, yeah. and family decisions and all these things. So uh, I think as we, you know, again, as Georgia continues to move forward and become one of the most important states in the country, this is exactly the kind of thing mm-hmm. I think we want to have a reputation for doing well right. and doing it right. All right. So we'll watch how that unfolds. And we'll certainly talk more about it as the legislation moves forward in the, at the Capitol. There's another uh, uh, measure that we've talked about on the show a little bit, but I want to go into it um, a, a bit more today. And that's this week, Howard, we saw the residents of Juliet, Georgia, from South Georgia. They are living right at uh, next door to Fort Shearer, a coal-fired plant that George Power shut down. They are very concerned. They believe that there is that the coal ash disposal has infiltrated the water table. There's well water there. They contend that it's caused cancers and led to deaths in the community. George Power uh, disagrees. George Power says it's studying uh, shows that everything is okay. But this is an environmental issue that's become a big, a big story at the state capitol. <clears throat> 
It absolutely is. Uh, I happened to be down at the Capitol working on some stuff on Monday and saw this group in full force. There are maybe 100-plus people in T-shirts, uh, all working the rope lines, talking to lawmakers of, of uh, both political parties and really upset about the lack of action and the lack of regulation on these coal ash ponds. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak to the science of it, but I, I got to imagine once you get co- constituents and residents who are convinced that they're being unfairly impacted in a way that could hurt generations of their families, There's, there really is no way around it to, uh, except to address it. And even should legislation pass that requires that these coal ash ponds be lined going forward, there still is quite possibly the likelihood that folks could be impacted for years and years to come. So this is going to be an important issue to watch. And, you know, Georgia is this, this interesting state in that it is and has been a ruby red state for the last, you know, decade, decade and a half. But environmental issues cut across partisan lines. Absolutely. And they, they really they, they really catch the attention of both parties when they when they get pushed to the fore. Yeah, I, I was, that's just what I wanted to talk to you about, Jackie. First of all, we should say, of course, Plant Shitter isn't the only place where Mm -hmm. where there are coal ash ponds or pits that uh, uh, people are concerned about. One of the measures that's under consideration down there, Democratic bills, uh, would call for lining uh, any place that you are dumping uh, coal ash to prevent it from getting to the water table. But as, as Howard points out, Republicans have been involved in this as well. Senator William Ligon from Brunswick, one of probably one of the most conservative members of the Georgia legislature has joined the fight. He passed a measure he's t- that um, we, it's a little complicated. Mm-hmm. The simple way of explaining it is it makes it more prohibitive for out-of-state companies to dump coal ash in Georgia. It'll be more expensive them, for them to do it. So, Howard, it's fascinating to see Republicans and Democrats both acknowledging an environmental problem like this. Sterogenics was the same thing. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's important to have a, a state legislature when people are from all over the state that represent the people. Because if something's happening in your community, you have someone that can go and can be an advocate for you. And I'm, I mean, I'm very proud of the, the citizens from Juliet. If you care about something that much, you need to come to the, to the state. You need to talk to your um, legislator. They need to, need to be present and say this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Bill, these, to me, these kinds of stories follow a pattern. Big company does something for many years well within the regulatory requirements. Suddenly, science unveils that maybe this is not the best way to do this. Company fights against it. Citizens get active. And you're right, Jackie. It's always the same pattern. When citizens, mm-hmm. voters mobilize things start to happen. And I think, again, you know, for people who listen to this show, and the reason we do it is when citizens are empowered and hold their government to account, things change, things happen. And that's actually what, I, again, for, the, for my column this week, I talk about that too many, I think too many candidates talk about who they are and what they want to do. And I think it's really important candidates understand that they're actually there to serve the people and to listen to the people. And But that means the citizens have to be active and engaged. Yeah, I could go back to the debate the other night. I'm sorry to say, Howard, and say that was a perfect example of what Jackie is talking about. I don't know that I heard many people on that stage mm-hmm saying, here's what I think you want out there. <clears throat> this was a 10th of eight. Things have devolved a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's such a nice way of putting it. <laughs> I, I thought but that, that doesn't mean they're not going to consolidate around a candidate that's and exactly have a right. strong election I campaign against soon. President I Trump. I expect it will happen soon. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always something. We watch primary fights and, and, and think the end is near. But over the decades, mm-hmm. we've seen how parties can come together That's around right. a candidate. Donald Trump might be a perfect example of that, <laughs> by the way. Absolutely. Right. Uh, very quickly, uh, I told you about the poll that uh, Tom Faust just sent me. It's state of Florida. It's done by St. Pete polls. Now, I don't know who they are. And so, you know, are they great or not? We don't really know. But they have Joe Biden in Florida at 35 percent, Bloomberg second and 25 percent. What's interesting about that is the last time they polled, which was just a few weeks ago, it was reversed. They had Bloomberg up by eight points uh, over uh, Biden. And this comes uh, uh, at a time when, uh, as you, you said, your candidate's really getting in the mix as we move towards Super Tuesday next week. Absolutely. I think things are going to be fluid. Uh, Super Tuesday is obviously going to put a lot of strain on all the campaigns to be able to compete across all those states. All right. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Jackie Gingrich-Cushman, Howard Franklin, Kevin Riley. It's been great to have you in the studio. We were glad Tamar Hallerman was here as well. By the way, we talked about Michael Thurman. He is on the show 
uh, with us uh, tomorrow. He and Sam Olins will be here. Amy Steigerwald will be with us, Jim Galloway and Eric Tannenblatt. It should be a terrific conversation. So please join us for Political Rewind again tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then.